everybody. Welcome to the next edition of the 1M by 1M podcast. 1M by 1M, as you know, is the first and only global virtual accelerator in the world. We work with entrepreneurs all around the world, but from Silicon Valley, and our mission is to help a million entrepreneurs reach a million dollars and beyond in annual revenue. And in support of that mission, we do a lot of work in the media. This podcast is part of our media activity. We're talking today with Don Hutchison, one of the most experienced angel investors in Silicon Valley. Welcome, Don. Thank you. That's a a very generous introduction. (laughs) (laughs) So you have been so prolific in, in angel investing in the Valley for so many years. Tell us a little bit about what you've seen over the years. What are the changes and and how has angel investing evolved and how have you evolved with that? Well, my hair used to be pure black and now it's gray. (laughs) 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 I I began in the space in 2003, 2002, 2003 actually, and it was the aftermath then of the uh, dot-com bust, and there was very little angel investing. Most people that had been in what we would call angel or seed investing had been decimated you know, by the uh, burst of the bubble, and yeah. the, the market generally was, was quiet. So there were a much smaller number of participants, and there was a lot of uh, uh, wariness on the part of Series A funders. So what you found yourself doing at that point was putting relatively large amounts of money into fewer deals, uh, probably much larger sums than seed investors should have been doing. You're really fulfilling kind of a seed and early Series A equivalent. And as the market recovered, say around 04 into 05, uh, <clears throat> you, you saw greater um, activity from the A's. Uh, in a couple of years from that, you'd see A's make a concerted effort to go into C, although that would be relatively short-lived. Uh, the negative signaling issue there really proved insurmountable, uh, where, for example, a, they had invested in a number of seeds, uh, knowing that it could not invest in all of them when it came time to an A. But that uh, you know, fiscal reality proved very difficult for the market to accept. But you also yeah. saw you know, many more uh, individuals come back to seed investing. You saw the emergence and growth of platforms like AngelList that would uh, bring these investors together and, and provide an easier method for would-be mm-hmm. entrepreneurs and seed investors to meet. And then uh, particularly coming out of the you know, recession in 8 and 9, you saw a fantastic growth in uh, seed stage funds. And so mm-hmm. prior to that time, there had been uh, some funds focused in the space, but truly they were very limited. Uh, you could yeah. probably count them on one, maybe two hands, and you probably wouldn't need a second hand. Uh, and, you know, at this point, I, I don't know how many seed funds there are, uh, but a recent reverence I, I saw suggested in somewhere between 220, 260, which I don't find to be at all unlikely. Uh, so yeah, I think there are about 500 some funds uh, spanning pre-seed, seed, what they call post-seed, pre-series A, and so forth. Well, so yes, it has become it, very confusing, in fact. But you, you, you touch on an interesting point. At, at one juncture, 
yeah, earlier in this uh, uh, period, <clears throat> you had your seed and you had Series A, um, and you might have some bridge activity, but bridges then were, were relatively infrequent. Uh, today you've got you know, friends and family, you've got pre-seed, you've got seed, you've got post-seed, you've got bridge. So it's entirely possible that by the time you get your firm to a Series A, your business rather, through a Series A, but the Series A is their fourth, fifth, even sixth round of financing. Uh, right. So it's, in some regards, you know, that's insane uh, that at such an early stage you've got so many vetting steps. In other ways, it reflects there's an appetite to support early stage companies that uh, really wasn't present previously, and that's encouraging. Uh, there also is a tremendous sense of expectation yeah, assuming that your company isn't in a flavor of the month category, uh, something that is currently popular and for which there are less discriminating characteristics, uh, the expectations of an A, I, I would say, are easily what they would have been historically for what we would call a B or even a post-B. Yeah, you've established mm -hmm. that you've got a viable product, there's good product fit <clears throat> to market, uh, and you're really raising the money to accelerate your growth, whereas an A was you know, in prior times, something that would be a bet on a promising idea, and the A was to test whether that uh, promise really held water. Uh, yeah. So, so the expectations have grown, and part of that, too, is you've had a massive increase, I, I would say probably in the range of 7 to 10x, probably closer to 10, in the amount of seed funding, regardless of, you know, the type of, of seed we're talking about. Uh, but just as a, as a category generally. And you haven't had anywhere near a similar increase in money set aside for Series A. Um, right. Depending on whose numbers you look at, it's about flat to maybe a 12% increase. I think more generously, uh, some have seen the Series A in the same period of time. The, the total pool of monies that we would ascribe to Series A yeah, increased by, say, 50 to 100%. No one uh, really would go north of that, and, and probably it's a lot less than 200%. So you've got, on one hand, a 10x increase of seeds, and so you have many more you know, Series A qualified candidates, and you don't have a like increase in Series A dollars. So it's been a wonderful time to be a Series A investor. You're able to be highly selective. Yes. But it's very difficult for seeds, seed stage companies, to uh, cross that chasm, get an A done. And hence the Series A gap. The, some of the numbers I've seen are, are very much, uh, if you actually uh, put numbers on what you, the phenomenon that you're describing is, uh, you know, there are 70,000 seed investments a year and only about 1,200 to 1,500 max venture investments, Series A and, and beyond. So it's a, it, it, there is a huge Series A gap that people have to deal with. So how how do you recommend uh, the seed investors as well as the entrepreneurs who are raising seed money? How do they mitigate the Series A gap? It's really a great question. First off, uh, so I don't know that you can entirely mitigate it, uh, but what you would want to be doing from you know the earliest thinking about your company about your venture is. Um, you're going to be in a very competitive process, uh, you know, to gain that Series A, if you will. And, and in all likelihood, if you're the kind of company that you and I are talking about, venture funding will be a, a normal part of your future. Uh, so 
you've got to have the kinds of characteristics you know, that will appeal to that audience, although there is still room for opportunistics. So for example, on the opportunistic side, we've seen great increase in interest in you know, blockchain, Bitcoin, uh, all types of cyber currency issues. Uh, mm-hmm. That would be something where you know, a smart team could opportunistically uh, act very quickly and probably have a reasonable shot at funding. And the downside is other people will follow suit. And so these uh, opportunity-driven circumstances, those windows don't open long, but they do mm-hmm. provide an uh, alternative to a more traditional you know, build-a-real-business type of approach. Mm-hmm. On the build-the-real-business side of it, it, it's really what it implies. Is what you're doing you know, materially, meaningfully better? Uh, in whatever it is. Uh, is this something that uh, recipients uh, or people exposed to the product or the service uh, would respond very favorably? And most of the things I do are, are things that ultimately we want to get paid for. So also would that audience pay for uh, the product or the service? And is there a clear path that establishes this be a profitable activity, at least at a unit level? It, we don't have to be profitable today we don't have to be profitable tomorrow, but we have to see that we will make money eventually. doing this. Yes, and eventually being, you know, not my lifetime, but in the next several years. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes, and, and, you know, there are some of the metrics that we are seeing uh, show up. Um, in Series A, investors are asking for a minimum of million-dollar ARR when it comes to SaaS deals and um and a certain amount of velocity in how people are acquiring customers. So those metrics need to be in place before a Series A round can be raised. So uh, entrepreneurs kind of need to be aware that however much seed money they end up raising, if they don't reach those kinds of metrics and those kinds of milestones, a Series A still remains beyond their reach. In all likelihood. Uh, there yeah. are always the exceptions. Uh, and those metrics are partly set up to help the uh, processing of opportunities on the venture side. So, yeah. for example, if you are looking at getting into, you know, Berkeley or Stanford or UCLA or Yale or Harvard, you have simply more well-qualified applicants yeah. than they could possibly admit that they face the unenviable task of telling, you know, say three quarters, eighty percent of their applicants, all of whom, or many of whom, if not all, majority of whom would be perfectly well qualified that they can't come. Uh, right. And so it's not entirely just somewhere on the venture side. Part of what they do from a mission standpoint, and it's part of what we've seen on, on venture, is how do we categorize applicants in ways that naturally deplete the numbers? Uh, in, so in the case of schools, you're looking at GPAs, you're looking at test scores, um, and those help level the field before they look at other characteristics, more personal characteristics, if they do at all, such as involvement in extracurricular activities, um, exceptional activities, uh, well out of the norm of high school students, and and so on. Um, And I would say that when, you know, uh, an associate or other person that you're dealing with at a venture firm you know, it says something like a million-dollar MRR or a million-dollar ARR or what yeah. have you. 
that they're using it to help themselves knock down the numbers of people coming at them. Uh, yeah. And if you actually watch what they do, if you're in that position, they don't necessarily adhere to these specifics, but they give them as, as guidelines. So guidelines, if you're yeah. Counsel- yeah, if you're counseling a student, a student says, you know, my heart is set on being a freshman at Berkeley, and their GPA is, you know, 2.3, and it's probably not going to work. And so you give that no. student encouragement uh, about, you know, kind of the minimum. Yeah, 4.0 won't get you in Berkeley, but if you don't have a pretty high GPA, it, it's, it's not going to be really don't have a chance. Yeah. yeah. And I think so some of the guidance comes across that way. I have um, a slightly different question, which I think is worth sure. discussing, because I know a lot of people are coming to us, having given up so much equity already, um, in the seed stage. So they have, maybe they have done a pre-seed and a seed and they've raised, let's say, $400,000 and they've already given up 17, 18% of the company and they still have to raise probably a post-seed and a bridge or a pre-series A before they're going to be ready for series A. So by the time they're done with four rounds of financing before series A, they've given up 30% of the company or 40% of the company. How do you deal with this? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, obviously, the problem you're talking about is what inspired the whole idea of notes. <clears throat> Pardon me. And uh, if you go back to, it was actually attorney-led in the Valley, the move towards notes. Uh, and at that time, they were uncapped notes. They were just discounted. But the argument was, this way we don't have to focus on pricing. And it, it would, uh, in all likelihood, lessen the amount of dilution uh, the founders would suffer. Investors basically said, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Um, you know, we're taking the risk and we're going to get a modest discount against what uh, a Series A guy gets for a highly de-risk opportunity. So that brought along the concept of caps. So you had cap notes, and you've had mm-hmm. several uh, small evolutions against that. But essentially, you've got cap notes are one way. Um, yeah, it, the, the note is an impediment to attracting equity-oriented seed investors, but they've generally been accepted, where in, in effect, if not in fact, you know, the, uh, the camp is viewed as uh, a pre-money on an eventual conversion. So the you know, we, we have- see cap, uh, cap notes a lot in uh, Silicon Valley, but if you go outside of Silicon Valley, people are still using equity very aggressively, and, yeah. and we yeah. very often see terribly diluted deals at very early stages. And that is the nature, historic nature of equity investment. The, the issue you're talking about, before notes became uh, accepted here, and it was a couple year process, um, it was all equity here as well. And you'd have yeah, I uh, a similar, but, but not the same issue because uh, you didn't go through as many rounds before jumping to an A, you pretty much Yes. If you got a seed, you went to an A. Uh, there might be some bridge, but the bridge usually came from the incumbents, and that usually was uh, discounted note to the to the A. No. Uh, so the the easiest way, uh, well, yeah, not the easiest perhaps, but the clearest way is to gain traction quickly. Yes, that is bootstrap traction. Not- We've been saying this ad nauseum, Don. <laughs> Get traction before you raise money. Well, don't don't have five raises before you go for an A. Uh, you know, when you raise money, raise an appropriate amount of money, 
but it all cycles back to what are you selling? Do you have something of interest? Um, and the market reaction to what you're doing is something that you really have to pay attention to. Uh, things may take a while to develop. If you look at Salesforce, you know, Salesforce was a pioneer in the SaaS space, and their early years were not robust from a sales standpoint. But they struck such a responsive chord. You know, the idea of leasing software as opposed to buying it uh, at the enterprise level was so resonant that it was obvious that that cycle would, would turn and they would do very well. But yep. in general, if you don't find traction, you have to ask yourself why. And you have to be terrible. Why are honest. you doing this? Is this a business well, at all, right? There's a lot of people, I mean, exactly. especially yeah. especially this whole eyeball economy, you know, we're going to get a lot of eyeballs and we're going to get a lot of traffic. And then what? Where is the, where is the monetization? Is there a business here? Uh, yes. And what kind of a business? That is, there are many, many more businesses uh, you know, that never take uh, the kind of venture capital we're discussing and go on to do you know, fabulous businesses. If you yeah. look at the, the landscape, you know, 90 plus percent of these businesses you know, don't even know what venture is, never went for venture, they just built a business. And so yeah. you have to ask yourself a question too is, is this a business that's suitable for venture investment? You know, the phrase would be venture investable. And if it is, it is almost a requirement that the business has a really exceptional growth. And if you can't yeah. forge that growth, if the audience isn't there, then maybe it's a more traditional style business that where you build incrementally. Maybe it's a lifestyle business. Maybe it's not a business. Uh, but these yeah. are questions we have to ask ourselves early on. And we have to accept what the, the game is. Uh, you know, I want to be yeah. good at basketball. I don't get to change the rules of the game. I have to, you know, within those rules, be good. Uh, yeah. And so and the rules here are fairly clear. The create a strategy that fits your business as opposed to trying to force a, a square peg in a round hole. Right, but it, it's also, we're not going to change venture. Where venture is no. at any point in time, it's a financial exercise. And, you know, they respond to a somewhat rational basis be you, uh, but you're unlikely to change it. There is another thought, though, too. If you, if you have a really interesting business, so somebody that has done a good job building you know, a great product, maybe they're not you know, a world beater in terms of financing, maybe they're not a recruiter, uh, there's, it makes a lot of sense, and you know, they uh, go on to attract you know, Series A, Series B, it becomes a real business. It's worth bearing in mind that subsequent investors have a great deal of latitude, depending upon the competitiveness of the deal, uh, to impose terms on prior investors. So, yes. for example, if I'm doing the Series A or Series B, if I'm leading that, and I really like these founders and think highly of what they're doing, the truth is I could care less about the prior investors. And yep. so if I'm concerned push about... Them well, push them down. Uh, if yeah. I'm concerned about the fraction of equity the founders have, then as part of my term sheet, I increase what they get, which comes out yeah. of the guys that are already in the deal. Uh, yeah. It's interesting. A fair number of investors seem not to recognize the dependency that they agree to, implicitly at least, on terms of subsequent investors. Yep. And, and so if you, if in a subsequent round, 
you have only one viable prospect who's willing to invest, and most often you don't have multiple, then that new investor, within reason, can impose some pretty harsh terms. If, yeah, for example, the founders references. don't don't have yeah yeah both for themselves, but also for the founders. They, they want they want the founders you know to be adequately and and key employees you know to be adequately incentivized, and they'll take okay, it out right. of the uh, equity of the current investors to accomplish Good that point. if necessary. Yeah. So Don, what um, talk a little bit about your um, investments? Uh, first and foremost, what has been what have been some of your most interesting and satisfying investments so far? Um, that's a good question. Let me think for a second. I would, uh, I, I guess, if I look at uh, deals that have graduated, you have been acquired, or what have you. Um, mm-hmm. I would say, oh, Sugar Media would be one. Uh, Sugar Media was a, a software stack for managing personal media in the home, and we would sell mm-hmm. to Two Wire. We combined with them, and then Two Wire itself would be acquired. And it was a very good outcome, but it also helped accelerate the management of uh, and the installation of uh, higher order applications and also just fundamental. Uh, broadband uh, hardware in the home. And so mm-hmm. I think we accomplished basically two wire would be the preferred uh, uh, hardware and software on the um, uh, the DSL side and others would be for cable. So I felt mm-hmm. we you know, helped move the market forward and at the same time it was you know a very good outcome um, you know for the for the company for the investors. Uh, mm-hmm. Recurrent Energy was a deal I was very active in. I actually put the team together, ran as chairman for a while, put the funding together, um, and we would sell that to Sharp. And in turn, a large group out of Canada would would buy that. And Recurrent was an idea that uh, I and another had, uh, uh, Matt Garlinghouse, uh, to find a way to make large commercial solar installations much more uh, affordable from a cost standpoint. And one of our contributions to the category was the development of the idea of a power purchase agreement. But even more than that, it was creating large solar more as a real estate transaction and garnering the many, many uh, layers of support that were necessary for that from professional mm-hmm. engineering groups, from financing groups, and so on. Um, mm-hmm. but, but that was personally very satisfying to see what came out of it. And, and also, it was, it was a good return. Um, WWcoms, Wireline and Wireless Communications, uh, was a company that was focused on uh, improving graphic throughput, based on 264, advancing that that standard, um, and they would be acquired by Cavium, which itself is a, I think, a real uh, stellar innovator in category, um, and so happy with that outcome. And yeah, that was one of those ones where you'd gone through the perils of Pauline in supporting. This, uh, uh, you know, incipient semiconductor uh, focused company. And we were, as a group of investors, somewhat punching above our weight class, you know, given the demands, the capital demands, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it might have been doubly satisfying because you came close to uh, going over the falls more than once you know, before the good mm-hmm. outcome. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, Trovix. Trovix is an early play in using 
artificial intelligence to help guide the definition of job descriptions. That is, oftentimes hiring managers describe a candidate uh, using other people's write-ups and what they think they should say, and it can turn out to be very frustrating from a fulfillment standpoint for the recruiters because the person they describe isn't actually who they want to hire. And oftentimes they don't even realize the delta. And so mm -hmm. the focus there is helping by drawing from their actual experience, helping create a description that was much closer to what they really were after. And then the back end of it was, you know, uh, then using that insight to sift through uh, yeah, applicants yeah. and, you know, make a, a better match. And, and that worked out pretty, pretty doggone well. And that's an area of, of personal residence. Yeah, I had done a master's thesis in this area about a million years mm -hmm. ago. Um, and we got, <laughs> and they were acquired by, by Monster. And that was, I was happy with that outcome. Um, and then a couple more recent ones. Uh, automatic, automatic labs, and they were in front of putting AI uh, through a small Congo software into average car used car owners, um, and so providing a tremendous amount of insight uh, before this started to become standard. Newer cars or pieces of became standard, and uh, they, they've just done some very nice work. They got acquired, interestingly, Serious, the serious, the you know, car music people, if you will, uh, also have a uh, uh, a part of the company that's focused on advancing all forms of technology in the car. Um, so I, I I quite liked what they did and, and the outcome. And then mind meld, and then I'll shut up on this one. Um, uh, mind meld uh, was was and is a uh, kind of a a, a, a voice. Um, uh, AI interface, if you will. It was uh, earlier into market um, than, say, uh, you know, a Siri. But the idea <clears throat> is that conversational interaction with computing, and uh, yeah. they've done some very nice work. They're pro still probably more at a technology layer with some uh, limited commercial outcomes, and Cisco would acquire them to, you know, be the uh, uh, the Cisco lead in this conversational. Uh, interaction space. Yeah. So AI is a personal interest area for you. It, it has become such. Um, it's it, it's not so much that I've got a pre-existing uh, bias towards it, but it just seems obvious that machine learning is uh, going to affect most everything over time. Um, yeah. You know, Everybody is recent, talking about AI as their area of interest. Um, you know, you're talking to investor after investor, and everybody wants to invest in AI right now. It's a big trend, huge trend. It, it, it is, and and I would say personally, yeah, you know, I'm looking for what is it, what difference does it make? What is how are we applying the the insight? Are we applying? Uh, there are people that are advancing, you know, how uh, machine learning improves, so the raw competence and let your Intel make an ever more powerful processor back in the day. Um, and then, but where I'm more interested personally is what do we do with it? How do we apply it? So for example, yeah. the HR thing that Trovix represented made enormous sense to me because I'd lived the problem that they were describing, you know, both as, yeah. uh, you know, head of a company, head of a division, 
And much earlier in my life, I also uh, uh, was a fairly senior guy on the HR side. So this mm-hmm. was something that, that I knew of. Uh, and what they were doing, while it was still early, was very, very useful. Um, yeah. There's a company that I'm in today, uh, uh, Scientific Revenue, and it's looking to optimize, <coughs> pardon me, the purchase of uh, accoutrements in uh, otherwise free mobile games. So you're playing your game and you want to, you know, add more ammunition to your gun or you want to you know, unlock right. a secret or something like that. And you can do that for a fee. And so the intriguing question there is, how do we optimize that experience, that purchase experience, so that you maximize revenue for the seller and you maximize satisfaction for the buyer. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, at some point in time, you know, maybe I'll pay X for that insight or knowledge or the additional tools, but maybe another time I'd pay a tenth of X. So there's a market there always. It's but finding the market in the moment and presenting the opportunity in this optimized fashion all in a seamless fashion and all necessarily in real time. And yeah. I think it's, you know, terribly interesting what they're doing in mobile gaming, but the implications, personally, I believe that most pricing will eventually become situational. And so I, I see great opportunity for the lessons learned here to be applied right. in other areas. Um, and that would include obvious things like entertainment where you already have pay-per-view options, uh, yeah. but where I see that becoming much more sophisticated and, uh, and and also much more sensible. So I, I look for how do you apply the AI, uh, you know, to a practical task and problem. improve it. Improve it to the benefit of both parties. Problem. Yeah. yeah. But, but so, I really think both buyer and seller. So then, uh, very quickly, uh, to summarize your current activities, how would you characterize what is your focus in your investments? What size investments do you make? Where in this continuum that we discussed earlier in the conversation of, you know, friends and family pre-seed, seed, post-seed, pre-series A, where, where is your sweet spot today? B2B, B2C industry sector, where are you focusing and what about geography? Uh, let me start with geography. Geography is Bay Area, uh, only. predominantly, no, not only, but predominantly, uh, followed predominantly. by, uh, you know, Santa Monica, Silicon Beach, and then New York, New York City. Okay. Um, okay. But mostly in the Bay Area. I would be uh, generally coming in with the first experienced money, so I'm probably not in a you know, friends and family round. Uh, so I'd probably am in what I would call a seed round. Um, okay. I, I, I don't I don't understand pre-seed and I think post-seed is really it's a bridge. Um, and I, I also think that bridges are almost inherent in the category today, and, and there they are, their own subject. So I would say seed. Um, you know, in terms of the areas, uh, B to C, particularly with a focus on small and mis- but <laughs> small and medium-sized businesses, has always been an area of interest and continues to be. Um, uh, work in AI uh, is a newer interest. Um, also, I find myself a little bit contrarian on some you know, hardware-oriented or product-oriented, but physical product-oriented yep. products, uh, pardon me, companies, 
for example, I'm an investor in Lemnos Labs, a incubator in the city that is very hardware centric. Um, mm-hmm. I'm an early investor in Tracker out of Santa Barbara, uh, which has done very well, and they uh, are all about tracking all the physical things in your life. Uh, mm-hmm. They originally start with cell phones, but the uh, the ambition is to basically be uh, able to track anything, anytime, any place, and so on. Uh, I quite like that. Um, so that drives me a third a third aspect. Also, given that right. you know I'm an independent, you know, literally you can do whatever really intrigues you. Um, so yeah. I wouldn't say that you know, when you take a fund and commit to investors, I would say it's a, a more serious, still not totally restrictive, but a more serious commitment you know, to focus on certain thesis. Well, wonderful and extremely insightful conversation, Don. Thank you for taking the time and uh, look forward to keeping in touch. You're very welcome and good luck with your work. You're, uh, you're doing something great here. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.